I'll begin. For all beings, wisdom, compassion, and dawn, clinging awareness. Well, tonight, uh, the, su- the subject tonight uh, is, um, is mindfulness, and uh, uh, build it as, or put it on the, the title, uh, if you want, three aspects or three uh, inner or outer, inner, and secret aspects of, uh, of mindfulness. Uh, and I thought what I would do is cover, actually even in some more detail than I did this weekend, but uh, be, be a little more specific about these um, three qualities in a, in a single uh, session. But I'm also very interested to hear what's on your mind or what's on your, not necessarily what's on your mind, that, that <laughs> actually not. But uh, if you have, or maybe, depends, but if you have any specific questions about meditation or um, awareness, awakeness, um, what's impeding or what's, uh, what, what to do to support a life of um, ever-growing awakeness, then I'd be very happy to try to um, help you with that. If not, I'll uh, um, outline what I call the three... Um, if you wish, the three aspects of, of mindfulness, which are not, I've actually never seen it, it explained that way, but it's um, apparent to me. And I think it may help you um, understand what mindfulness uh, uh, is. So, so hello there. Hi. Yes? Um, how do visions in meditation come to be? How, how do they come to be? Uh, be good. That good. Good question to, uh, to ask, and a good question to have for for um, this evening is about visions. The we could actually uh, put it another way too is is how do they come about, and um, what is their um, importance, or do they have a place when it comes to um, unfolding mindfulness? Any others? And can everybody hear me? I feels it when I sit here. I've noticed this in this room. It's a lo- lovely room, but when I speak, it feels like it vanishes. So I don't know, or it could be this person's hearing. So I don't know if you're actually hearing me at all. Maybe the people here, but it doesn't. It doesn't feel like uh, the voice gets actually very far. It does feel Does it? Yeah. Voice, can you hear me back there? Yeah. Okay. It's it's a funny funny acoustics in here. It's dull. There's a lot of carpet and wood and yeah. Yeah, and it, it feels like uh, I actually have to speak very loud to hear. I guess the sound vibrating. Yes. Because yeah. if I talk, although like, you know, I've I... taken the carpets up and had an orchestra in here, it sounded great. Next time we'll take the carpets. No, it's it's okay as long as you can, as long as you can hear me. Yeah. 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 I don't need to hear myself, so don't think you need any feedback, anyways, do you? No. Not sir. So if I speak like this, I feel actually. If I speak softly, can you hear me now? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Okay. Good. It's quite. That's quite soft. I'm just gonna carry on for a while longer. <laughs> <laughs>
anything anything you want to have clarified? I like I like I like really enjoy your questions. This is this is actually uh, sort of a. Uh, I have one. Yes. How do you commit to uh, decide to take the training to become a lama? Like the the years and. Uh, are you thinking about? Are you contemplating that? Well, I this took something? this past year and did my own. Uh, not full commitment of solitude, but uh, more of a an in residential. take that question on uh, advisement since I, I might or might not. Okay. That question may uh, either be um, divert a bit or be important. We'll see. Any, any others? Just to throw it into the mix, um, I, um, I work with a lot of people who are trying to change their lives in fundamental ways. So we're really trying to use a lot more mindfulness and sort of basic practices of mm. body awareness, breathing, being aware of your intentions, being aware of your movements. But, um, you know, for people that haven't sort of familiarized themselves with that, it's quite difficult. So any thoughts about, you know, sharing it with others? Um, and sort of applying it in everyday life, I think, would be, would be good. I'll talk, yeah. certainly talk about that. Yeah, are you finding it successful? I, I mean, I think it's just the, the, the basic way forward. It's a foundational practice, mm -hmm. as I see it. I mean, if you want to develop internal motivation, you've got to know yourself. So uh, I think it's, it's just it's going to take off. It's going to you know, permeate our society. You know, my daughter's is talking to Steve, but uh, you know, in grade two, they're, they're teaching mindfulness. So teaching children how to pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just but just to be with themselves as well, right? Like they just sit on the floor and they're just connecting with their breath. Mm -hmm. Very basic practices. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's great. It's wonderful to hear. Wonderful to see. Yeah, I mean, these are discoveries. Uh, it's funny, these are, these are um, practices that have come from the East. But uh, there was a time when people went to uh, places in Europe, about 100, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, and for hundreds of years, where prayer, which requires a tremendous amount of mindfulness, uh, was uh, a known uh, transmission of oral instruction, how to, how to be mindful. So it's coming back. It's coming. So yeah, well, certainly, certainly, what I say tonight may 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 uh, help um, uh, that that question. Any others? Yes. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about um, generosity generosity towards ourselves. Um, you mentioned generosity yesterday, um, at the end of the retreat, and um, I. Have a, the, the question is with generosity to, generosity to the self, when is it wholesome and when is it not wholesome? That requires discernment of simply knowing, uh, learning, what constitutes wholesome mental activity 
and physical activity, which is mental activity, and what isn't. So uh, a straightforward answer to that is uh, through mindfulness, through uh, recollectedness of states that result in other states, is unless the mind becomes clear in its ability to discern resultants and what they do, then it's simply mindfulness is a bare mindfulness that has no power. Because you'll just repeat the thing, same things over and over and over again. So this, this, is, where, this is where the teaching of, um, of Dharma comes in. This is where teaching comes in. I'll start there. It's actually a very good place to start. This is where the teaching, uh, teaching is required to help people um, at a fundamental level at least question, raise question as to what is a good activity and what is a, an activity that causes harm to themselves and other people, right? And usually, um, we meet people and say, well, you, you, can't, you shouldn't be teaching that to me. What right do you have to tell me what is ethical or what's moral? So people translate that into moral dogma. But if one harms oneself and harms others, and especially the warfare that happens internally all day long. That's, that's the killer, is the internal warfare of dialogues. Most people simply don't have the tools and don't have the strength and do not have the capacity to sort that one out for themselves. They simply don't. It's just not there. So uh, some people jump right into uh, bare attention. What, what, what's generally called mindfulness. Mindfulness is, as I said this weekend, is vast in scope, as I'll try to outline tonight. Um, so the idea is that if I just watch something, that will do it for me, but actually uh, it's not where the path traditionally starts, ever. Has never, ever started there. Where it starts is at the most fundamental level is what constitutes uh, reasonable ethical behavior at an external level. Otherwise, whatever you're doing externally is a reflection of what's going on internally. Is this pretty common sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, isn't it? So if you're stealing a little bit, then you're stealing a little bit inside. It's not very generous, either on the outer or on the inner. If you're conniving with speech or you're clever with speech but it's actually harming others and even harming yourself through gossip or whatever or innuendo or all kinds of sloppy speech then you can do all the mindfulness practice in the world of for instance watching your breath or scanning your body but you will continue with the same patterns because you're not bringing a clarity to it of the most fundamental level that needs to get built to develop strength for mindfulness and then we uh, must say what is the purpose of mindfulness in the in the Buddhist tradition of liberation so in the tradition of Buddhist meditation the only purpose for mindfulness is freedom from afflictive suffering mental states that's that's the reason to make a being not just happy occasionally, but to dwell naturally in a state of happiness, 
that requires uh, no object in particular. So without a basis of ethics, without a basis, if you wish, of virtue, of non-harm to oneself and others, uh, um, any meditative practice has no legs. It has no support. It, keeps fall- it will keep falling down. Now I'm speaking absolutely classically. So you'll see that the... the um, the great meditation texts in Southeast Asia, the Vamuti Maga, which was the first one, the compilation of the forty great, of the thirty-eight great classic meditations, plus all the behavior of a wanderer, and the third section. So the first section is all virtuous behavior, how to be and have tremendous strength, which will lead to wisdom. That's the first section of the book. That's a major part of it. The next section is meditation, concentration. The third section is insight meditation, which is about the wisdom mind, unfolding wisdom realization. That book is very specific because it follows a very, very old tradition, which is if there isn't sufficient power through virtue, non-harm, through behavior that's conducive to liberation, then you can do all the meditation in the world you want, but it will never ripen into liberation. It's just simple. It's really simple. It might ripen into black magic. It might ripen into a powerful being, a being who's on about power. It might ripen into a being who's much more on about self-development or getting it together in the world, or martial arts, or being able to stop cars in traffic, you know, stand out there and stop a car, or lift cars, or all kinds of feats of mental strength, cleverness, all kinds of things, because of mindfulness, but it will keep breaking down in terms of, of um, having the legs cut underneath from it. Why? Because the mind is not being purified at the most fundamental level, which is it keeps doing it self-harm. He says, well, theoretically, if your mind is very clear through mindfulness, it should. Uh, yes, but rarely. It doesn't have the strength. It doesn't have discernment. So the most basic place to be generous, because you have to have this. This is I'm, I'm being so fundamental here. The most fundamental place to be gener- to be um, a strong is generosity at all levels, both generos- generous to yourself and generous to others. This has always been the hallmark as the basis for liberation and meditation. If you want to know why most meditation falls apart or why it goes up and down, has difficulties, is because the um, a base of generosity and uh, virtue is not strong enough to su- sustain wisdom arising. Obvious, but it's not obvious to a lot of people. So, to be generous, the first place to be generous, 
is a basis of moral or ethical conduct. And in the tradition of Buddha Dharma, the minimum is the five precepts. Not monastic. But if you were to fulfill beautifully or develop beautifully the five precepts of non-harm, not killing, not stealing, not having wrong speech, not having wrong uh, sexual activity, um, non-intoxication. I'm missing one there. That's five. Then, uh, those five alone, which are profound and deep, which go to the heart of everything and form the basis of all monastic um, precepts, will lead to an extraordinarily generous being, a being with a lot of energy, add all the factors and stability that lead to a meditative mind. The mind is then already calm. Then, when one applies training of mindfulness, watch out. It's beautiful. It just goes boom, 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 boom. If not, it's always falling down. Crash. 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 I wasn't even thinking of starting there tonight, but thank you for that. that that's why I was... Hold on. Now, the, one of the difficulties... Come to that side. One of the difficulties in this society, uh, and you see this in the history of the teaching or the bringing of Dharma, Buddha Dharma, to the West, is that um, a lot of Westerners... Now, some Westerners, yes, some no... But a lot of Westerners are uh, suspect of religion, suspect of being fed dogma uh, or morality. They've had enough of that. So when a lo- historically, when a lot of teachers came over from the East, they didn't teach a lot of the foundations that would be taught traditionally in the East for people to uh, spiritually mature. Because the Westerners wanted techniques. Teach us meditation. Teach us meditation. Teach us meditation. And so you see the emphasis in the West has been on meditation, but actually the emphasis on, in, the, in the East when you come before a teacher is a development of a being in the richness of a being and seeing if the being actually has legs. Okay. Do they have legs? Can they stand on their own two feet with some stability and solidity? And are they a good being? And if they aren't, uh, I've, I've said this many times because I've, I've seen this in some very ancient texts in Zen. You certainly don't want them in the Zendo. That's the last place you want a being when they come knocking on the temple door or the retreat center and they want to become enlightened. The last place you want them is in the Zendo, meditating with everybody. Where do they go? The kitchen. Can you make a pot of rice? Can you make tea for the monks or the nuns or the, the practitioners? Can you sweep the floor without being, it's too, too lowly for me. Would you please go clean out the kitchen, for, uh, the, the toilets for a year? Yes, it's true. Not because anybody's wanting to put the person down. But why bring all that stuff <laughs> among people that are actually, have really clear minds, they're actually getting about meditation. The person doesn't even have the facility to sit. This is traditional. 
but because of demand for technique, uh, give me something to do. Without all the um, dogma, if you wish. And then uh, here's a technique. Watch your breath. This is historically the case. It's changing, but historically the case. Uh, a lot of Westerners wanted the science of meditation, the technique of meditation, to give us a technique, and still very technique-driven that way, is don't give me that other Buddhist stuff, strip it all away. And actually, a lot of Easterners are quite... Traditionalists are a little bit suspect of this, and actually a little bit, what are you doing to our tradition? Because you're stripping it bare to, give it, to make it a Western uh, tradition that actually has no no um, no guts. It's like, um, well, some Buddhist teachers have said the religion of mindfulness now. Without without the um, surrounding uh, basis of all, you know. By the way, you know mindfulness. I, I mentioned that I outlined this weekend the training and teaching of mindfulness, the word is sati, not mindfulness. Mindfulness is just one translation. But the word sati, in the classic teachings of Southeast Asia, have de ten different meditations of sati, ten major meditation systems, of which breath is only one. Generosity turns out to be one of the first. The contemplation of all the qualities of generosity is considered an essential part of the cultivation of mindfulness. But, it, but it's often stripped bare, it's taken out in a Western context. The contemplation of death as one of the major meditations of mindfulness is taken out. The, the uh, classic meditation of mindfulness, sati, of morality and ethics is dropped. But normally, traditionally, you would go through those ten and the teacher would demand that you spend time immersed in those ten to know the qualities, to know what, what is a, uh, a mindful being. So before you, I'm just speaking classically because we, we have a hard time doing this now, but before you come to the Zendo or to the meditation center and sit, and do a lot of sitting, Teacher wants to know if you could actually bring a cup of tea from one side of the room to the other without spilling it and tripping over the people who are sitting. I'm joking, but actually, in fact, that's the case. There's some wonderful Tibetan texts that actually have uh, these big, uh, what are called lamrims, manuals, manuals of the, of the path, that have things in there. Can the person discern color? Like, if they look at a color, can they actually see and name what colors? It, or is that function not functioning very well? So the, these, these um, aspects of, is the being functioning well to be able to meditate? Uh, needs to be considered. So today we have some people who are deeply into meditation as a path without the other parts of the path that require uh, a being, who require instruction from a being that maybe has more experience or more ethics or, more, or a little bit wiser 
or a lot more wise than they are, who can counsel them and say, you know, that's actually not a great activity. And a, um, a center or a monastic environment or something like that, some center, some place in which to um, participate in activities with people that are well-trained is, um, is a good place. Why? Because you begin to see your behavior in the midst of beings that have very relatively cleaner behavior than yours. That's good. Make, does that kind of um, make a bit of sense? Where does faith fit into that too? Because that was uh, that was um, next. That was yeah. that was the next uh, word coming out of my mouth. Thank you, thank you for that. Well, the legs uh, now in the in the some of the traditions, especially some of the Tibetan, Tibetan traditions, the legs are faith, confidence. So um, placing your confidence in a mentor that can be um, a gentle, loving, or sharp with you and say, uh, you know, um, you're going to have to learn how to uh, boil a, a pot of rice. Yeah, well, I know how to boil rice. <laughs> I've had that a few times. Uh, I can boil rice. You know, uh, we have a way of making uh, tea here. Yeah, I know how to make tea. You put the tea bag in and you go like this and you take it out. So the confidence starts with, uh, do you have enough confidence in your being to take instruction? That actually is really important. People think, oh, you need confidence and faith in the other, in the teacher or the teaching. Actually, if you don't have enough confidence in your own being, you can't go before someone else. You don't have the, the emotional strength to go before someone else and be told either you're doing, because watch what happens for Westerner, you're doing beautifully. Oh, come on, you're just saying that. <laughs> I'm not really, am I? You're just making me feel good. And then when the teacher or the mentor says, oh, come on, it's not acceptable. What do you know? So, so for a Westerner to engage in this, this, this is like a it's, a, it's a minefield. It's either anti-authority or sloppiness with, oh, I love you. Anything you say, anything you ask me to do, you know? The sloppiness of devotion. Or the other, which is, nobody will I take instruction from. So you get people that are, this is very typical Westerners, Westerners. They're very happy to take instruction of a teacher, but inside, they are way superior to the teacher. Guaranteed. The pride drips, even if it's well covered. Meek and mild and gentle. I'm the teacher. And I always will be. Yeah, so <laughs> these, are, these are some of the issues. Uh, so... so uh, Sometimes I say, good luck, then go sit and meditate. Good, good luck. So these, these rough edges, uh, profoundly rough edges, somehow need to get taken off because what we see is people go to retreats, even many years of retreats, and the same issues 
keep plaguing them for years because those rough edges, you know, there's a wonderful, have you ever, ever watched diamond cutting? Ever gone to Antwerp or New York or maybe even Toronto, but uh, Tel Aviv or Bombay and watch diamond cutting being done? Well, there's a wonderful process called bruting. I, li I like the word, bruting. And uh, many diamonds, especially the ones that are used for brilliant cuts, are octagonal in shape. So they have a square profile. Two triangles put together, and there's a square profile. So the crystal has these four bumps. And the, the crystal needs to be sawn first. So you take one of the tips off. Just slice it off with a saw. Or you cleave it off. And you get these people. It's amazing to watch. Crystal? It's that fast, by the way. You think it's study it, but no. Knock off the knock off the tip, okay? Just knock off uh, one quarter of the stone. Now you've got the tip off, and you've got four corners. Well, that four corners has to be turned into a circle to make the girdle of a gemstone. So they have to brute it. This is, reminds me of what's what's like with students. They put it into a holder. It's a little holder. It's for bruting. They put it into a holder with glue, with uh, wax, actually this hard wax, put it in, and they take another diamond like this until all the little those little corners come off and it actually is round. Then it's serviceable to cut <coughs> 52 facets. Are you seeing the metaphor here? Mm -hmm. uh, diamond has a lot of bumps on it and the bumps have to come off it's called bruting. I like that. Brute. Yeah? Brute force. With another diamond. So the diamond meets the diamond. And the chunky bits come off. And only then can you put 52 facets on it. Or 57, depending on the cut. Yeah? To bring out this incredible radiant brilliance. So where are you going to get the bruting? <clears throat> I didn't say bruising. <laughs> I know. I didn't say. I, I heard it, but I didn't say it. bruising, bruising, bruising. And the bruting process is that you want to end up with a good being, not a dull being, not a slavish being, not an uncreative being, not a being that follows instructions blindly, but an intelligent, good wholesome being that's on about liberation, whether they're monastic or not monastic. This is, I'm just telling you, that's how you, be, that's how you have to be generous. That's the, the basis of being generous, is you have to start by the five precepts. This is the dividing line. This is the dividing line, um, if you wish. Uh, like in, um, um, is it Burma or Thailand? Might be Thailand and Burma. Traditionally, uh, you wouldn't marry your daughter off to a man who ha who has not done a three-month retreat and taken a temporary ordination. They're not considered human. You, you know, I'm quite serious about that. They're not considered human unless you've actually gone into a three-month meditation retreat and joined a monastery temporarily and put on the robes. 
as a as a novice or as a um, uh, taking the eight precepts, but often as a novice monk, young novice monk, uh, then uh, you're not considered um, uh, human enough to be married off to uh, one's daughter. No way. Interesting. So something, not because you're, you've all got this in check, you're fine with this, but something that you can watch others, your friends. Go, 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 I'm just joking. <laughs> go, 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 go check it out with your friends. You know? uh, whether um, there are pockets in the ethical life that need brooding, that cause um, disruption of the awakening, liberating process. Then you might say, well, I'm actually leading a very good life. You might. But you may not know where the bumps in the diamond are. That can require the interaction with a being uh, who is a mirror to you. To uh, find out, or, or going into situations and places where you um, find out where the bumps are. It's important. You had a, a question there a long time ago. Yeah, yeah I did. Um, I just was wondering how generosity relates to openness. Uh, easy. Uh, the greater the true transcendent generosity, the greater the openness. It's very, very direct. If there's actual real generosity, which means it's not being done as a game, it's not being done for gain. Oh, I like that. It's not being done as a game, and it's not being done for gain. It's actually being done out of a, um, a genuine uh, love to see uh, another being cared for or grow or develop, especially gr uh, grow and develop in freedom, real freedom, uh, then um, it's uh, supremely loving and generous and, um, and open. It's the greatest openness. The reason being... There's many ways, you see, to teach, um, to approach mindfulness. Many uh, levels and many aspects. But you see, and I mentioned this uh, quite a bit this weekend, and maybe if I get a, a chance tonight, I'll read a, a beautiful, uh, some beautiful teachings of mindfulness from the Mahamudra and Dzogchen tradition. But um, to realize that, that really mindfulness uh, and generosity ultimately are one and the same. And the reason being is that a fully generous being is in a state of non-clinging awareness. Not bare mindfulness. That's a training. That's a good training. We all need that. We need that for a long time, and we should keep doing it. Uh, the ability to be attentive, deeply, deeply, deeply attentive to presence and activities, what's happening. Um, but... At a, at a very fundamental level and a, and a very high level, generosity, which is anti-greed, anti-stickiness, right? The full manifestation of generosity is anti-greed. It defeats greed, discreet, de defeats lust, defeats the need to have everything and hold on to things with sticky fervor. Eventually leads to the experience of the mind free of any clinging. That's called non-clinging awareness, also known as the transcendental, as real freedom, also known 
which is slightly Christian but also quite, can be quite Buddhist, as the state of real love. Real love, real compassion. So you could easily say, easily and even traditionally say, that full mindfulness is full generosity. A state of complete, uh, fully developed mindfulness is in fact the state of complete full generosity. None other. There also have been reported uh, through the history of the tradition of uh, Buddha Dharma um, individuals, mostly monastic, who have meditated on the core of the five precepts and have awakened through that meditation alone. In other words, in other words everything, every activity that they do in the day, everything they think about, everything they do, gets turned into a virtuous activity and gets studied whether it is wholesome or unwholesome or, further, is conducive to liberation. That's different. So, at the beginning, I'm hoping I'm, asking, I'm answering a few questions here. There's a couple that I'm not quite, but... At the beginning, one needs to discern and build up what is good and what clearly is not good. Then there's all kinds of gray shades, right? Gray. Well, and then be able to get uh, through mindfulness, <coughs> through recollectedness, be able to see where all the gray points are. And those gray points can be huge, by the way. Those are the things that can come back and haunt you and uh, bring you to your knees very quickly, the little, the little things. <coughs> They're dangerous. But uh, as many great teachers said, great teachers of liberation said, eventually you must go. You must go beyond the good and the bad. You must go beyond the ba- uh, the good. To what pristine awareness that is not thinking about what is good. It simply is acting from a place of liberation. Liberation is good. Liberation, compassion, compassion, compassion. So on the, uh, now to return, uh, if you want, to, to another theme, on the outer level of mindfulness. Remember, sati, or mindfulness, has many qualities about it. It's, it's, mindfulness is only one translation. It's not a bad translation. It just happens to be a translation from 1886. It's what got picked in 1886. It's been with, with, what's been with us by Reese Davies ever since, pretty much. But other authors use the word recollectedness. Uh, one of the major meanings of sati is memory. It's one of the one of the major meanings of the word sati is uh, high quality memory, uh, recollectedness, uh, presence, awareness. Different names. Many different 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 names for this one word, asati. It also depends on context. It's fair to say, from the Buddha's time onward, because it's been repeated uh, thousands of times by different teachers and at different times, but starting with the Buddha, that the, uh, if you want, the foundation, well, the foundation of the path is loving kindness and ethics. But uh, when it comes to meditation, it comes to liberating the being into wisdom, wisdom mind, uh, without strong mindfulness, without strong recollectedness, without strong awareness, very strong. It simply won't happen. 
It's just not going to happen. And the clearing up of afflictive states will not happen without mindfulness, and a lot of mindfulness. So on the outer level, which is really good, by outer I don't mean bad, by outer I mean good. On the outer level, the consciousness that can stay with an object, whether it's breath, whether it's sensation, uh, often in many meditative traditions, it's an outer object. You could pick any outer object to train the mind to be attentive. Now, this is another word that's been um, more recently used for mindfulness. I like a lot. This goes way back into uh, insight meditation. Is that sati, in fact, is the attentive mind uh, known, as opposed to the attentive mind that's operating all the time. Anyways, the human organism is always attentive, moment by moment by moment. It dies very quickly if it isn't. No matter how much distraction you have, your organism's attentive. We, we know this from neurophysiology, and you, you, can, fig and you can experience this uh, eventually in insight meditation. It's a, it's a stage of insight meditation, a stage of actually Zogchen and Mahamudra, where you experience that the mind is always attentive, no matter whether you have thoughts or no thoughts. It's completely, perfectly, pristinely attentive. I could probably test you, and some of you would get would probably know how many teacups are in the uh, rack over there, having come in. And you probably all your org not you, but your organism knows how many steps it took to get into the room. Absolutely, and you know where everybody is in the room to within at least a centimeter, maybe even a couple of millimeters, and a lot more about them. You've already read their smells. You've picked up whether you are fearful of them or you, whether you like them, whether you want to go close to them, and what, you're, what you feel like in, uh, comfortably uh, in terms of space. All that's done in, a, in a hundred thousand points of information without you ever knowing it. Would you call that attentive? Very attentive to detail. We're wired for detail. We're wired for making collections. We're all curators of galleries. We're all museum curators of stories and images and uh, artwork and sculptures. It's all organized. Yeah, whether the retrieval system is any good, that's another matter. <laughs> and whether the retrieval system gets messed up through um, uh, concept and point of view, well, that's another matter altogether. But it's all there. Uh, you cannot drive a car. Anybody drive tonight? Mm -hmm. You cannot drive in this weather. Right, Raphael? I can drive in this weather. Without a lot of attentiveness, you, things can happen. You can miss a stop sign. You can miss pedestrians, especially at UBC, stepping off the road without ever looking up. And especially with a cell phone. Just like this, walking across, never looking up. <coughs> you know? It's even more challenging. It's wonderful. UBC is like some marvelous test of mindfulness. You know, <laughs> It's like you're behind this 2,000-pound vehicle, and there's people just launching themselves off across the road without ever raising their head, and they expect you to stop. But they don't even expect you to stop. They're just simply walking across the road. There's no looking, nothing like this. 
Is that what you meant by higher memory then? That's a bit of a new term to me. Not, not the, just the cell phone, but the access that you were talking about. Yeah, that, that access to being sort of merging what is happening in the organism with what is happening in conscious activity. Being able to access these things. It's already happened. It's already there. Most of you know, people come to see me and they ask me questions about what should they do and what do they go and all these kinds of things. Well, it's already there. It's already been decided. It's already there. You already know what is the best course of action. But the, what we'll call, I'm not even keen on this term at all, but um, it's a left, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually not a very good term. The conscious mind simply doesn't have access to that. It's messing around too much. It's not reading the signs. Yeah. What controls the ability to access it? Uh, clarity. So we need to get to Sampajana. The word in Pali is Sampajana. So as the Buddha said, bare mindfulness, being able to be present and attentive to what's happening as a sole practice of meditation, he called Mitya Sati. Wrong view Sati. Now, it's not bad because you've got to start there. You've got to learn to be really present for sustained periods of time. But there can be a, uh, which uh, Tibetan lamas love to uh, use, a term called stupid meditation, which is, in fact, you can be concentrated for a long period of time, but nothing happening between the ears. It's dull. It might even feel bright, but it's not going anywhere. It's calm for calm's sake. It's alertness for alertness sake. It can stay on an object for a week without budging, but so what? Good skill. See what I mean? For instance, like a, a wood turner. I'm not going back to the ancient text. A wood turner can turn out one bowl, or machinist. Let's let's get let's get um, modern. We're now in uh, outskirts of. We're in uh, Dusseldorf, Germany. We're all you know all these uh, near near the Rhine. Uh, hundreds of machine shops. Computerized, non-computerized machine shops making every part uh, known to mankind. And there's someone there who can turn out the same part beautifully, one after the other after the other, because it takes attentiveness. But so what? It's not creativity. It's not necessarily going to go anywhere. Nothing negative about German technology. It's fantastic, actually, because there's a lot of people thinking about what they're going to do with it. So you can, you can be a good potter and turn out the same bowl over and over and over and over again because it does take attentiveness. Or a person who drives a car well. But that doesn't necessarily lead to liberation. It leads to a calm, maybe even a relaxed being. But it can often lead to a, well, let's use that term, stupid meditator. Okay. Or what I call, I used to call a zombie meditator. Zombie meditator. Okay? However, if there isn't a high degree of bare attention and a high degree of presence, then all meditation falls apart. There's no sustaining factor. Okay? So that's the outer. That's the outer. And lots of people trained in this, which is great to see is to experience the beauty, the wonderful experience of being present. 
because a lot of people have, have, have forgotten those moments in their lives of utter presence, right? Isn't that amazing? It's extraordinary. I know people who've experienced uh, as an adult in a retreat or non-retreat a few moments of utter presence, they've been blown away. They've never forgotten it. Either in a 10-day retreat, an insight retreat, or some program, or a weekend. One moment of, of presence, they go, oh my, I'll never forget it for the rest of their life. But you see, the thing is, on the inner level, uh, that uh, uh, presence, that uh, experience presence, is always there. What happens is, it's like the, the clouds part and it comes shockingly through. That's all. It's always there. The organism knows it's there. It usually has a laugh. I mean, the, the experience of enlightenment is laughing one's guts out uh, because uh, why didn't someone tell you what it was uh, like already? It's just there. It just shines through. It doesn't get produced. It doesn't come through with trumpets. It's just there. So how come teachers didn't tell you right from the beginning? Well, they did. <laughs> It, you know, it's sort of like being in Vancouver in the wintertime. <laughs> yeah. But it's like being in Vancouver in the wintertime, and nobody tells you, you know, you're in the winter, like, like this. And, you know, you, you could just go up to a mountaintop, and uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sunlight up there. Mm. Yeah, or, you know, you, you uh, get in the plane, and you fly through the clouds, and there's that moment of just popping through the clouds, and you know, wow, this is over Vancouver. So the fully attentive mind that is, that is imbued with generosity, as imbued with wisdom, no, or clear, no, clear knowing, sampajana, is already there. It's just the veneer needs to get purified off, the coating needs to get taken away, bit by bit by bit, so it comes through. So the whole process of liberation is noticing, is being attentive to those moments where the light shines through, the clear knowing shines through, and one gets used to spotting it and nurturing it and accommodating it. Not the other way around. That's how it works. That's it. Some of us decide that we'd rather uh, go to Central America to change the weather. Instead of being here and working within the confines of a cloud cover, we actually get on a plane and we go to South America or Central America or New Zealand in the summertime, something like that. See. But there's others that, uh, you know, sit on Bowen Island, <laughs> waiting day after day patiently for springtime to come along, which, you know, spring in... June. June, <laughs> July, summer, a couple days later. So on the outer level, which, which by the way, I'm not saying it's bad, on the outer level is sustained ability, sustained discovery of the joy the upliftment, the easefulness, the relaxation, the clarity, the openness, the loving-kindness that comes with sustained attention. And we have a society, of course, that has every device known. 
to make sure that you will not be able to sustain your attention. This is, this, this is good, this being introduced in grade, grade two. How many people do we, we count this morning? Was it this morning or yesterday? Uh, just in the same posture, like this, walking without looking. Same posture. Oh, by the way, I read a wonderful statistic the other day. Rogers did a study. Rogers did a study and found out that 62% of um, Canadians uh, take their cell phone or their, um, their, now their, well, their partner um, to the toilet. Not in the toilet, but to the toilet. And 62% of Canadians actually take their personal device um, to the toilet and then carry on from the toilet. But here's a, here's a wonderful number. 80, I think it's 85% or 80% of all Canadians go to bed with their partner. I mean, their, their, their cell phone, with their computer. They're in bed with their, they, they go to bed with it. That means they go to, it's they're in bed with them. Isn't that something? Now, there's nothing wrong with these machines at all. They're wonderful. As a matter of fact, I, with my granny's case, uh, my mother's case, I brought a little iPad along. See, they're marvelous. Absolutely glorious. But um, watch what happens when you say during a retreat, the beginning of a retreat, all cell phones, please. They're getting locked up by the administrator watch out. And the ones that won't give it over, they just go, well, it's my alarm clock. <laughs> and then the ones I catch that know the weather report the week before the retreat's over. And because I go, so what, what, why is it that you need to do that and make a, well, the weather's changing next, how did you know? <laughs> you checked your alarm clock, did you? <laughs> Oh, and because it's your alarm clock, it also has all your email messages and books and all kinds of things that you can read to your heart's content while you retreat, while you're trying to discover what this extraordinary experience is called an organism. Yes? So we live at a time which is rich and glorious, an extraordinary time of opportunities, at the same time um, beings with very high level of addiction to distraction, distraction, any microsecond of distraction that feels better. So the discovery of mindfulness, discovery of the uh, experience of presence, is the utter joy of what the organism feels when it lets go of having to be somewhere else. Hmm? That, that's the outer. You must, must come to that, is this beautiful experience of being, of being. You should ask yourself, do you have that? Can you do that? Even if you're working on your computer, whatever, television, can you just pause and relaxedly enter into a state of presence that is timeless? Or is there an itch? The same neural pathway for cocaine, it turns out. It's been measured. It's the same neural pathway as cocaine. Do you have that little itch of cold turkey that wants to get back on the machine. Yeah, same pathway. There's a wonderful study recently in Europe 
I think it was 3,000 or 5,000 individuals, and they took their uh, cell phones and computers away, laptops away, and watched what happened with brain imaging and other things to them. Same thing. Cocaine withdrawal. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. So we live in a society that makes tremendous amounts of money based on this new addictive feature because the human brain is very addictive. This is not a negative thing. It's extremely addictive. So what is the human brain addictive to? This is important for understanding mindfulness. What's it addictive to? Pleasure. Pleasure. Absolutely wired for pleasure. It's wired to be happy. It's wired to have pleasure running through it. It's chemical. We'll do anything. We'll eat potato chips even though... Here's, here's the best supreme test of meditation. In your room, which is white walls, at the Dharma Center or Wangapeka, the teacher, the evil guru, places outside your room ten bags of <laughs> potato chips. Just like that. One, two, three, four, five. And then they put a tape recorder by the door, and what they hear is one bag, two bag, three bag, four, five bag, six bag, seven bag more. So the question is, can you stop? Because a potato chip is designed, right? it's absolutely designed, there's actually a, a chart, a curve, that has been developed in laboratories for the ideal amount of salt and carbohydrate and fat to come together to one point, a certain amount, to trigger a very old part of the brain, so you have to keep eating. You won't finish a quarter of the bag, you finish not only a whole bag, but you go on to the next bag because it's sitting beside you. And the crunch and the texture and everything else. So we're wired for pleasure. The question is, what kind of pleasure? So the discovery of the absolute joy of not having to have any object at all in particular, just the release and relaxation of mind in presence is a first taste of happiness that comes without a thing. It doesn't come with an idea. It doesn't come with a self. It doesn't come with an outer. And it doesn't come with an inner. So it's a genuine experience of presence, which almost everybody I suspect that I look around the room, has had, yes, you've all had it, is it's an extraordinarily lovely experience where at that two or three seconds or ten seconds, and some in the room is longer, is there's no you, there's no time, there's no need to go here or go there, there's no need to eat the whole bag of potato chips, there's no need to do anything at all but be, and totally comfortable. Hmm? Question is, is there the training and the, the legs to sustain the arising of that more than just once in a lifetime? You know, you go, go to some place, some retreat centers, I won't name which one, but it's not Crystal Mountain. But. You know, and then, I remember Jamie coming back once from when the early days meeting me. And he, I sent him down to the to the main hall of a certain retreat center. He came back on his hands and knees. And, ah, what happened to you, young lad? Oh, well, I sat around all the old time. In 1963, I experienced a transcendental. 
I don't know use, honey. You're just a beginner, you know. So he's, he got an earful of this stuff, which was like, well, you know, I'm. Uh, I was confirmed as a sotapanan. I was confirmed as a, a sakadagami by my teacher, and I, you know, I did that three months ago. What have you done? Here's good. Through the crot. He comes up. He's, he came back to the cat at the target. Are they cracked? Yeah, it's nuts. It's nuts. All telling stories about the time they had the experience. Well, this isn't. This isn't. This is not. A, this is an unprofessional attitude. Professional attitude is: um, once you discover that experience, wouldn't you want to wake it up and have it as a continuum, natural continuum of your day? Yes. Instead of going, well, I'm waiting for the next. You know, one lady who studied for many years, years said. Not, not listening, said, oh, by the way, I'm quite sure the next retreat will be it. I said, what? The next retreat I'm pretty sure will be it. Well, what about now? What about now? So you can go from retreat to retreat to retreat going, well, this will be it. But how about the practice, the development all day long of, of a presence, loving kindness, compassion, generosity? I'm sure, and I know that being uh, quite well, and they were, but they had this mistaken belief that uh, it would be that, that one, that one, that one. Well, it should be every day. Every day there'll be more awakeness. Now, on the inner level, which that is kind of, but on the inner level, it's the discovery that breath, which is uh, an ob- can be the object of focus for bare attention, in fact, becomes more. The breath is none other than the energy of one, not just one's organism, but one's mind. This is profound. And that breath that the quality of sensation running through your physical being and your mental being is directly um, equated, can be directly, uh, what's the word, merged. It is, the, it is the mirror image of what your mind feels like. This is the inner level. So you can watch, uh, watch or focus on the breath for three or four hundred years. Yeah, it's a good practice. But it will not relieve the afflictive emotions. As the Buddha said, it's mitya sati. It's a wrong view of, of mindfulness. Because it's not coming to the vitality of the mind. It's not, it's not getting to the um, how consciousness rides uh, each moment. So for that, uh, most traditions um, then um, go to a place of merging mindfulness not just with breath, but the word changes, of course. It becomes a prana, or it becomes the emergence of attention and prana, the emergence of attentiveness uh, with a continual attentiveness with the vitality of both the uh, body and the mind. Without that, there will be pockets, tremendous pockets of sleepiness, tremendous pockets of lack of vitality to tread the path of liberation. Without that, there'll be all kinds of difficulties. I don't have enough energy to be generous. 
I can't meditate today. And you see, it's tied up with pleasure. Because once you discover that breath is totally tied in to pleasure, that the greater the attentiveness to sensation, the greater the bliss. It's like this, by the way. The greater you place one attention on sensation of breath, the greater there will be a tremendous pervading physical well-being in your being. So here we today we have a problem. Some places. Many places. Many places. is trying to have bare attention without the permeation of vitality and sensation throughout the whole body, as I said this weekend, is like taking your head and trying to smash your way through a brick wall. Because the attentiveness and the degree of blissful attentiveness rests on the breath. This is the inner level. This is the yogic inner level as taught in the Tantras, as taught in Anapanasati, as taught um, in the yogas of energy. So someone who's trying to be mindful but doesn't have the energy is lacking in sensation, lacking in permeation of vitality and sensation. The being that doesn't have the uh, oomph to want to meditate because it's a glorious activity, a glorious exploration, may not have the channels, if you wish, the vital channels open enough to be able to walk the path. So watch what happens. Being aware of breath of the nose is fairly safe, but being aware of breath in the belly really aware of breath in the belly, can be like setting off dynamite. Why? What's, what's laid in the belly for 23, 4, 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years? What's in the belly? Emotion. Storehouse of emotion. Storehouse of clinging. A storehouse of holding. So by the age of many, many children, they get to 10... 8, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, their breath is already stopped. Just go around. Go, go, go look for it. They don't breathe. Most adults I meet don't breathe. They haven't, they haven't breathed for a very long time. They breathe. And if they watch the breath, they can breathe. But this is what, we're not, what we mean by breathing. A long time ago, they stopped breathing. The, the, the vitality of feeling sensation from the tip of the nose to the crown of the head to the throat, to the heart, to the belly, to the genitals, right through the toes, the tips of the fingers, left a long time ago. I get to meet all kinds of people, healthy, happy people that are frozen. Frozen right to the bone. And yet they can breathe. But they haven't actually taken a breath in 10, 15, 20 years. I get to meet teenagers and preteens. All I have to do is have a meal with them or sit down across with their parents or something like that, and it's right 
right there. Already food disorders, already beginnings of anorexia, right at the table. And there's no breath at the age of 12, the age of 11, stuck. Not moving. Nothing's moving but this. It happens really early. Not for everybody, but lots. So at the inner level, what's called the secret level, not the secret level, the inner level, called the inner level. Some traditions would call it the secret level, but the inner level is a discovery that when the breath is full, the mind is serenely happy, the body feels happy, and the concentration, the ability to want to be in the potato chip. It's called awareness of awareness. The, the joy of presence can be sustained can be naturally sustained hour after hour after hour because the breath travels through the subtle energy channels, runs through the nerves, and the being feels alive, and, and concentration is joyous, is interesting, the curiosity is there, and sustaining awareness, sustaining mindfulness is an utter joy. There's nothing else you want to do. The discovery in meditation that there's nothing you'd rather do all day but be present. Presence. No, not keen on presence. There's no present to be aware of, but there is presence. Alive and joyful with nothing to do, happy to do nothing whatsoever, but observe this vitality and this brilliance, this luminosity. This is supreme. Supreme. Not dead. Vital, not uh, stupid, not dull, but absolutely there for every moment, fresh. Why? It's a bliss that transcends potato chips. Guaranteed. I will bet you ten or $20,000 that when you discover that, you will say it transcends a bag <laughs> of organic... Free-range potato chips. <laughs> That's my way out of this. Part, okay? it, it transcends a bag of free-range, organic, natural, farmed, even, not lab-grown, farmed, non-GMO potato chips. Does that apply to chocolate, too? Yes, <laughs> it does. I know that's a stretch because most most uh, uh, people that come into retreat, especially of a certain gender, <laughs> bring at least five kilos of chocolate uh, in with them. I know that's a stretch, but um, I'll even say that. Although although there is a chocolate, um, 100% Madagascar chocolate by uh, Michel Pont, which may be close to that. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. But, but not, but not. Not even the experience of God in a cup of coffee uh, will reach that pinnacle, okay? Yeah. Now, that's not the transcendental. But it is darn good because what happens is there will be for sure an experience where you're going to wonder 
if you are actually an aware being and so on, and contemplating and with some training, well, guess what? There was no stories. And you can't find the object of that looking. It's good. It's good. We still don't know the nature of it, though. Okay? So the, the inner level is the opening through awareness and visualization or mantras, whatever you want to do it. In the, in the teaching of Anapanasati, of the uh, a path the Buddha taught of a recollectedness or mindfulness of breath, it uses breath as sensation to open the channels to get a very clear mind called sampajana, right? A clear, knowing, lucid mind, which is a serviceable mind for insight, for vipassana. When it's open, then there's stability. When it's not open, there's little flash experiences. And people wonder, well, why doesn't it really change me? Because it actually hasn't been a full physiological permeation. Yes, but I had an experience of being present, but it's not permeating right to your toes, so that when you walk out the door, it's still with you. When you come out of the monastery retreat center, or out of the retreat center, it's actually still a physiological memory in your cells. It's not what they call in the, the Mahamudra and the Dzogchen lineages a flash experience, or in... Um, in the traditions of Southeast Asia insight, what's called a chinsignana, chinsi. <laughs> called a, a knowledge, well, it's the Pali is different, it means something else, but I, it, it, it accords well. Uh, cheap knowledge. It, it's a flash experience that's so amazingly cool. And you'll talk about it for days, but it doesn't have any sustaining, lasting physiological effect on you. Yes? Is that what you would um, also call like opening the third eye? Is that the same experience, or the Kundalini advising or opening the wishes, as you say, the full body? Yes, okay. but I prefer to use the word instead of Kundalini because it's become a buzzword today. Uh, the word Kundalini means life force, life present. Uh, it is the awakening of the full body of vitality and um, calm woken up. Um, and I prefer not to use the, the word the third eye. I prefer to use the um, traditional word, which is the dewachaku, the um, eye of radiance. Um, the Kundalini experiences do not necessarily lead to insight, and um, they can actually, if not developed well, um, uh, often lead to fragmented um, beings who are then on about uh, hallucinations and visions instead of actually clarity. Uh, a short way of saying this, which I may not get into tonight, but you could you could just leave it in the uh, cells somewhere back there, uh, is that Kundalini, which both the downgoing experience and the upgoing experience of Chandali, life force energy, without the co 
emergent nature of emptiness is extremely problematic in that it is chasing after highs and chasing after bliss and vision and sounds but not actually getting anywhere necessarily towards liberation, freedom. Nor does it necessarily produce, in my experience, uh, beings of compassion necessarily. Not necessarily, because sometimes uh, you have a being with really good training or really good background and does have the sudden movement of life force energy and uh, it can be quite extraordinary. But most of the time, uh, and sometimes ending up in a psychiatric uh, institution um, when the top of the head gets blown off and they're in pain, racked uh, with pain for days, or they're um, having pins and needles shoved in them, or they feel like they're being um, 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 dunked in cold, frozen cold water, or burnt up in fire for days, or uh, um, having... Um, constant visions of lights um, or aches and pains or uh, feeling like the heart is being burnt open things like that uh, that's because there's no foundation so the uh, meditation of breath following the breath or the inner yogas is taught uh, in the tantras and so on uh, allows for an orderly and steady uh, and systematic way of opening the body and opening the subtle energy body so it is alive, loving, compassionate and um, serviceable for the purposes of insight. Okay, so that's the inner. Uh, I'm just going to watch the time. That is the inner level. The secret level is the, uh, is the aspect of emptiness. So, uh, mind, as the Dalai Lama uh, uh, last year pointed out, over and over and over again, uh, in um, talks he gave before initiation, I said uh, to people uh, in the audience, uh, a person who meditates, a person who practices Buddhism, who doesn't understand emptiness, is not a Buddhist. It may be cool, it may be interesting, it may be something, but it's not Buddhism. Over and over and over again, making his point. So, uh, mindfulness, sati, without joining, co-joining, entering into a contemplation of the nature of freedom, nature of emptiness, of all phenomena, including self, uh, is bare, devoid, devoid of dharma. And the Dalai Lama was extremely pointed on this for three days, two and a half, well, you even started the initiation late. That's all I'm not going to get around. But he was, he was pretty hot to trot on this one, obviously. Um, and for a good reason. Uh, is that what's the purpose of the meditation? In the tradition of Buddha Dharma. So, both at the uh, outer and at the inner, when the mind becomes serviceable, and has enough clarity and curiosity and as many Eastern teachers say teaching of Dharma because it helps the mind starts to be pointed either by self but usually because it's directed there by, by teachers 
you look then, instead of looking at the, the presence and the experience of, of calm and clarity, you start to ask the question, what's happening with the sensation? What's the nature of sensation? What's the nature of these mental states? What's the nature of the sensation of the mind? What's the mind feel like? And one of the things one notices is three characteristics. You've all, have you all heard of these? The three characteristics. One picks up that all sensation is transient, all mental phenomena is transient, you know, that all states are subject to change and loss, and therefore, uh, because one clings to them, they cause suffering, that's called dukkha. And the third, that one looks at any state, any arising, one can't find a self, a lasting self there. That if you look into a feeling, not only will you not find any substantiality behind a feeling, but you won't find you. When you look into a sensation, not only will it vanish quickly, but you won't find a you behind the sensation. There is no sensation. There's no you behind any sensation. That is a construct. It's a figment. It's like being in a movie theater and someone showing you a story, but because it's been shown so many times, it's perfectly believable every time there's a sensation. Oh, it hurts. It's hurting me. My belly's hurting me. I'm uncomfortable. There's no uncomfortability. There's no I in the uncomfortability. The I is made up later. No sensation has an I. That's a story we tell ourselves, but it happens very fast, within milliseconds. Actually, within about 150 milliseconds. But before that, there's just a sensation, a curious sensation. You know, like those curious mints? What are those called? Altoids. What? Altoids? Not Altoids? Altoids. It says on the package of... Is it Altoids? Yeah. Yeah. On the package, it says, the curious mint. (laughs) (laughs) You should get a package. It's little metal packages. They're kind of fun. Altoids. The little tins. The little tins, yeah. yeah. Of the curious mint. But before there's any eye or any emotional reaction or any uh, uh, story there is a phenomenon. Before you get up in the morning and go, God, it's Vancouver weather again. It's simply clouds. They're neither good nor bad, right? Is a tornado a bad tornado or a good tornado? Is there such a thing? There's just a tornado. It's just wind. Yes? Is there good Vancouver weather and bad Vancouver weather? Is there? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> You've been living here a very long time, Ted. Doing anything um, in a week? Come, come down to Honduras? <laughs> well, I'll show you uh, that, that change is possible. <laughs> so, unless uh, these three characteristics of transience, of Um, irritation or unpleasantness caused by clinging to that which is temporary, anyways, which is every phenomenon in the world, including you, and that the um, 
that behind all the phenomena there's no I present. Sorry, it's a creation, it's a myth. Uh, without that, there's no freedom. There's no sustained happiness. There's highs, there's visions, there's cool experiences, there are um, joyful moments, there are unpleasant moments, but there's no uh, cutting edge into the heart of freedom. So at the secret level, the secret level, unless mindfulness is discovered to be the, em the nature of emptiness itself, then there's not freedom. Are we clear about that? So at the secret level, mindfulness must be investigated. You must look at mindfulness and find out what this mindfulness is. What is this aware mind? What is this mind that cognizes? What is this mind that thinks? What is this mind that loves? What is this mind that has every kind of experience? Right? Isn't that right? Mind can have every kind of experience. How many more would you like to have? Would you like another million more experiences you're going to give a name to before you discover what experience is? Right? The next text, the next tweet, the next, next encounter on Facebook? How many more do you need before you get tired and go, what is this cognizance? What is this awareness itself? What is its nature? That's the purpose of meditation. That's been the purpose of meditation for 2,500 years. That frees a being. Watching phenomena does not free a being. But you better be able to watch phenomena, be mindful, really well, or you can't contemplate emptiness. Do you see what I'm saying? If you don't have enough sustained mindfulness, presence, clear, lucid presence, being able to be settled the body and the mind, then the investigation of what the phenomena is is going to be very difficult because not only will there be a story attached all the time, but the mind goes off every time it gets a little bit difficult. It's much easier to turn your computer on. It's much easier to check the next email message. What is it? What is it? Now they've got alarms. You know. Me, 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 here. No. Well, you do enough of that internally, don't you? Mm. Next message comes in. Hi, I'm here. i got a fantasy for you. <laughs> bing, bing. <laughs> Take a look. Bing, bing. <laughs> What's the experience of turning off the computer? Enjoyment. <laughs> What's the experience of turning on the computer? Enjoyment. What's the, What's the experience of neither turning it off nor turning it on? Enjoyment. It's not the computer that's the problem. It's not the cell phone that's the problem. It's just grasping that's the problem. Cell phones aren't bad. Computers aren't bad. Rogers is not bad. Telus is not bad. 
They're not bad. <laughs> I've, I've, I've also been on the phone with Rogers and Telus and Beth for hours and hours and hours trying to figure out and why I've been double billed for six months. Yes, I've, I've had that. Yeah, I know what that's like. And them telling me, well, you have to check your, your bill every month to see if we do and then reclaim it. Well, thank you. That's nice. But why does your computer automatically decide to give me a different telephone number, another number that actually doesn't exist that they can bill me for. So, yes, I know. But they're not inherently evil. <laughs> they're not actually even bad. These things aren't bad, right? It's the clinging that's bad. If you cling, it hurts. If you don't cling, it doesn't hurt. So, let me, let me finish uh, tonight. Uh, so I didn't get around to the question of the training of a llama. <laughs> Although I did. Guaranteed I did. Uh, I just, I did, I covered it in a non-obvious way, but if you listened, uh, I covered all the ground of training uh, of a llama. By the way, just to, just to, to say that there's, there's two meanings, uh, two, today two meanings llama. The original meaning of the word Lama, which uh, is a Tibetan translation of the Sanskrit word Guru, uh, used to mean, uh, just uh, simply, or uh, grandly, simply, uh, a, a being who is a spiritual mentor, but of a, a type that can lead beings to liberation. Not, not, not necessarily a scholastic Dharma teacher, not someone who can read the scriptures, but someone who actually can direct and lead a being to liberation, has the skills because of their experience to do so. Uh, however, today, uh, in um, today and for the last number of hundred years, there is also another title given, which is Lama, to uh, anybody who undergoes a three-year uh, retreat process in the tantric tradition. And when they finish, they're given the title uh, Lama as a teacher. And sometimes also today, a, a monk uh, even a young monk uh, or an older monk is addressed out of politeness as Lama. So there's there's three uh, different qualities. You have to figure out which one's which. Uh, sometimes the title Lama um, is bestowed on a person who is uh, a teacher of liberation, but may not have taken those formal trainings, but is trained in liberation. So I'll just, just, guess that. so uh, one has to be careful. You could go and uh, get the training of becoming a Lama, but not necessarily the authority and authorization to be a Lama. But you may have the title. Uh, so how do you become a Lama? Uh, you become, become a Lama through realization. That's the traditional. This is a good way as opposed to uh, some other way. And as for your question, visions arise uh, in the same way that uh, all uh, visual experiences arise, whether awake or sleeping, or dreaming. However, uh, it's very common in meditation or even non-meditation uh, when uh, to have startlingly strong visual, um, vivid visual experiences. 
that are so powerful that uh, the, if you want, the hallucination has a profound meaning. Some do, some don't. So one has to be very, very uh, cautious of visions that actually have meaning, have actual some validity, or uh, visions that can lead a being to liberation, and visions which are really no better than dreaming awake or having a good dream, or even a bad dream. I've known some very, very good psychotics, really have, who have the most extraordinary visions, but are very sick. I've even known people who've hit their head on the floor and have had visions. But it doesn't mean it doesn't necessarily mean it. So a vision in meditation, any kind of visual phenomena, any sensory phenomena, music, sound, vision, um, taste, touch, does not necessarily, even if it's vivid and beautiful and wondrous, doesn't necessarily have any liberative benefits at all. Some do, some don't. That's why it's good to check it out with a teacher. Some are actually so powerful and worthwhile that they become the meditation object. They get used as a meditation object. Others, leave them alone. Leave it alone. Others, excellent. Why? It's showing that something is actually now developing and coming along. You could say that for liberation, for developing insight, the vast majority of visions are absolutely useless. That's traditional. Just absolutely useful. They're diversionary. Diversionary tactics. To complete diversion. I, I, I've often quoted, some of you have heard this so many times, but there's a few people in the room who maybe have not studied with me before, so it's, you won't fall asleep, but I will tell you this, uh, this story that Namjur Rinpoche often told is uh, during the time when Mahasaya, a very famous uh, master of insight, Mahasaya of Burma, was teaching, uh, there was a monk who was a good meditator, and uh, one evening or one afternoon, he was sitting in meditation, <clears throat> watching the rise and fall of the belly, the breath, and lo and behold, with his eyes open, uh, there arose before him an 18-foot-high golden Buddha, full light. Imagine what that's like? Full. Just the full resplendence of a standing Buddha before you. Imagine what would happen? you get blown away. Just little, oh my God full of light, golden. So the, the monk who's meditating got, went into a swoon, went into an incredible absorption, bliss, utter bliss, of this 18-foot-high being that came down. And then the robe of the Buddha glanced his face. And he went deeper into, deeper into ecstasy. So he went before his meditation teacher the next day, who's a great master of insight, went before Mahasisayadal the next day to report. And he said, said, what happened to you? He says, well, I was meditating on the rise and fall of the breath, and this 18-foot-high Buddha came down, a vision of glory. And it was so real, and it was full of light, and then it, its robe glanced off my face, and it was ama- you know, amazing. What would Mahasaya say as a good insight master? Is it on the rising or the falling? No, he said, you stupid monk. Go back, and yesterday when you were watching the rising and falling, you were meditating. Get back and go to work. It's true. Okay. 
Now, if, if, the monk, if the monk had been in a state of equanimity and watched the moment of the arising of light as a phenomena and the passing away of the phenomena and could note the beginning and the end and the complete vanishing point with utter certainty and precision, his teacher might have broken into a smile. Because that's insight. No matter what happens. I mean, you can go to the teacher and say, yesterday I had a giant Buddha Rupa 400 feet up that, that came down, right? And it was so blissful. And what's the difference between... And then it took out a spear, right? And pierced my... And it hurt badly. What's the, what's the difference? Oh, okay, it was 400 feet and it oh, sat on my head. It really hurt. So whether the phenomena is good or bad to you, or pleasant or unpleasant, if you don't have the equanimity to see the appearance of phenomena and the vanishing of phenomena, the transience and the empty nature of it, then you've lost the thread of insight and wisdom. You're lost in phenomena. How many more Buddhas would you like to collect? How many more visions would you like to have? Do you see? That's not important. What's important is you see that the Buddha figure standing before you is none other than your own mind of spacious awareness, conjured by your mind. That's good insight. I'm going to read to you now uh, two, two, two um, beautiful short uh, teachings, pithy teachings, uh, one by uh, Mipam Rinpoche, and the other by a recent uh, Zogchen master, Ken Rinpoche. Mipam Rinpoche lived uh, about a hundred years ago and was a great, uh, um, um, great, uh, uh, great yogi, great, great accomplished yogi, and also a great scholar, both together. So this is a very famous pithy teaching by Mipam Rinpoche, one of the greatest of Tibetan teachers of the last century. If you can simply practice Mahamudra and experience stillness, Occurrence and awareness according to the vital instructions of that practice, you will ultimately perceive the truth of reality. This is because the nature of your mind has the Sugata essence, has the Buddha essence. The nature of your mind has the Buddha essence. Apply the related key instruction. Are you ready? The basis of all things is mind. After understanding the mind's secret, Seek the vital point of your mind and you will become skilled in all things and realize the meaning of egolessness, self, uh, non-self nature. Since I am teaching according to the oral instructions of the realized ones, I will leave out various logical investigations. Stillness is when you look into your mind, direct yourself inward and remain devoid of any kind of thinking. Occurrence is when various kinds of thoughts arise. Awareness is your mind being conscious of either of these. Are you conscious of the thinking mind? Are you conscious of the still mind? Not the phenomena. Oh good, now I'm not thinking. Oh no, I'm having thoughts. But can you look into the heart of stillness and can you look into the, the heart of thought, conscious, aware of either of these. 
if you remain if you maintain this continuously that is deep continuity you that doesn't mean a day and it doesn't necessarily mean a week by the way It can mean a long time. If you maintain this continuously, you will come to understand the following vital point. Various feelings such as joy and sadness arise from your own mind and dissolve back into your own mind. Nowhere else. It doesn't come from outer space. It's not made by Martians. Understanding this, you will come to recognize that all experiences are the personal experiences of your mind. You don't ascribe them to anywhere else but your mind. There's no teacher speaking here to you, to your mind. There's a phenomena taking place in your mind. There's no experience out here. There's an experience in your mind. This is a very hard uh, pattern to break, to shatter. There's nobody speaking here. In actuality, there is an experience in your mind. That's for real. Subsequently, by looking directly into the essence of your mind, subsequently, after that knowledge, after that discovery, not intellectual, after that discovery, Subsequently, afterwards, by looking directly into the essence of your mind, whether it is still or thinking, you will understand that it is empty, and even though it perceives many things, it does not possess any entity whatsoever. You will not find a thing there. You will not find suffering in a sensation. You will not find suffering in your cell phone. No email message has a self. Only clinging creates a self. This so-called emptiness is not a blank void like space. Rather, you will come to understand it is an emptiness endowed with all supreme aspects. This means that it does not possess any self-nature. Yet, it has an unceasing clarity that is fully conscious and cognizant, uh, knowledgeable. So when I say you know the answers, when you put your hand up to ask a question Lama, you already know the answer. You may not know the answer. Mine knows the answer. Just go access it. It's fully cognizant. It's fully spacious. It's fully aware. But it... Uh, is covered over for a time in stories. When realizing the secret point of the mind, although there is no separate watcher or something watched, so you have to get way beyond the watcher. You know the watcher? People talk to me about, you know, is this a meditation about the watcher? There is no watcher. There's no watcher and there's nothing to be watched. There never was. You spend the rest of your life watching. You may as well, it might be okay for a time, because you need good watching, good, observe, good observational skills. But if you're taught there's a watcher, then you're going to be meditating on the watcher 
for a very long time. If you're, if you're taught that phenomena actually come and go, you'll believe that phenomena come and go for the rest of your life, because that's what you'll see. Phenomena don't come and go, by the way. They don't even arise, they don't pass away. Oh, did I say that? <laughs> when realizing the secret point of mind, although there is no separate watcher or something watched, to experience the natural luminous and innate mind essence is known as recognizing awareness. Not watching awareness, recognizing awareness. Did you hear the difference? The recognition of the nature of awareness is different than watching awareness. The recognition of the nature of breath is different than experiencing breath. Let me give you an example. If you, uh, well, let's, I'll give two examples. One is the case of building a house. If you've built houses, then very often when you come to a house, you look at a house, you see it very differently. You see it in terms of its structures. You see it in terms of how it was built. It's no longer just a house that people inhabit, but you can actually almost have an x-ray vision to see uh, perhaps difficulties with studs and rafters and uh, not a very good foundation. And you can appreciate things that many people can't see. Um, Stephen, many years ago, invited me to come on the set of the making of a television program. That was my first time, but it was, it was a real good one. And, and um, probably ever after that, I've really never seen a movie without looking for a shadow of the boom. <laughs> or thinking about how the cuts are done, the angles, and who's walking in, and, who's, and how many outtakes they did, 40 or 50, before they got it right, and the editing involved, and the light, and how the music comes in and out, and, you know, this sort of thing. Uh, you know, I imagine, I would think, as a producer, or a director, or as an actor, it's, not seen, it's seen as empty of any real substance. It's a production of a producer, a director, writers, actors, lights, sound people. Do you, do you see me? In the same way that you've got no self that is a real thing, it's put together due to scriptwriters and theater folks and sound men and women and everything else. In the same way that, that uh, experiences of awareness, experiences of mind, feel very solid and real out there, but they're nothing of the sort. That's just a lack of acuity, lack of acuity of mindfulness. So. I'll read that again. When realizing the secret point of mind, although there is no separate watcher in something watched, to experience the naturally luminous and innate mind essence is known as recognizing awareness. Have you had an experience of recognizing something, shockingly? Something you've actually gone, oh my God, that's not what I thought it was. It's very, very different. This is the recognition of awareness that is not a thing. Awareness as uh, spacious, open, vivid, 
presence with all the good qualities of compassion, uh, all the supreme qualities of knowing. This is what is pointed out in both Mahamudra and Dzogchen, the insight traditions of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. According to Saraha, who is a great Mahasiddha of India, uh, if you can sustain it, he didn't say that, but the uh, Mipham Rinpoche is saying, according to Saraha, if you can say it, sustain it, quote, by looking again and again into the primordially pure nature of space, seeing will cease. What kind of seeing? Looking will cease. You looking will cease. The being looking will cease. The ego having a looker will cease. As stated in the Prajnaparamita, the great teachings of wisdom, quote, mind is devoid of mind. The nature of mind is luminous. And the word luminous cannot be described. It's not necessarily light. It's light. That's because it's free. It's not a thing. So it, it says, mind is devoid of mind. That means mind is devoid of a thing. You won't find a thing. That's why it can do what it does. The nature of mind is luminous. That is the wonderful clarity qualities of, of awareness. There, and then Mipam says, there is nothing easier than this but it is essential to practice. And if you remember, it says again and again and again, and many beings just simply don't go again and again and again. It's not well-trained. So they go again and again and again, but not necessarily with well-trained, or pointed out, the, the essence. And, and um, uh, one more, which is a lovely, beautiful poem. <coughs> Somewhere over here. Marvelous invention, isn't it? <coughs> this is saved, I figure, uh, last two days. This little device, beautiful inheritance from my mother, uh, has saved five or six pounds of books being transported in my bags alone, maybe more. Uh, one is uh, this thick, uh, one is uh, uh, that thick. By the way, porcelain paper with... with high-quality images, so they're like like this, and all sorts of books like this, and like this, and like this. It's been marvelous. Here's a poem by Nashul Ken Rinpoche. He died, I think, in 1999, one of the greatest uh, greatest uh, Dzogchen masters and Dzogchen scholars of the last, of Mahamudra too, of the last um, hundred years, great being. It's called The Mirror of Mindfulness. Very short. I thought you'd enjoy this, just to read this out. Homage the king of self-existing mindfulness. Homage the king of self-existing mindfulness. Look here, all Vajra friends. That means all beings involved in the Vajrayana path. I am the Vajra of mindfulness. I am the enlightenment of mindfulness. When seeing me, be mindful. That means when you uh, see the mindfulness, be mindful. When you recognize mindfulness, turn it on even further. Anyways, I'll, I'll read through it without commentary. It's just so beautiful. Look into the essence of the immovable mind. 
I am the mirror of mindfulness, clearly, clearly showing you your mindful attention. Mindfulness is the root of Dharma. <coughs> mindfulness is the main part of the practice. Mindfulness is the stronghold of the mind. Mindfulness is the aid to spontaneous, aware wisdom. Without mindfulness, one is carried away by laziness. A lack of mindfulness is the creator of all faults. A lack of mindfulness doesn't accomplish any purpose. A lack of mindfulness is like a heap of excrement. Do <coughs> you like some water? of mindfulness is like a heap of excrement. Uh, it was translated as excrement uh, for polite reasons in a published <laughs> book uh, because it's uh, often been given as another word. To lack mindfulness is to sleep in an ocean of urine. To lack mindfulness is to be like a heartless corpse. Friends, please be mindful. Through the aspiration of the Supreme Guru, may all friends attain firm mindfulness. And then he writes at the end of Kolophon, These words urging one to be mindful were composed by the stupid, buck-toothed ox, the bad monk, <laughs> Jamyang Dorje, and offered to his Vajra friends, May it be virtuous. <laughs> marvelous little these, these these poems and teachings that eventually come to light said spontaneously to friends and students and wise beings so I think that's uh, lost for night unless you have some pressing urgent questions how's David Dave is doing much better. Thank you. <coughs> Anything last remaining questions you might have about the nature of mindfulness? Yes. Um, there's no watcher, no seer. Like all the observer fades away and all that. Then sometimes I get stuck on like what's the point? Like the North American purpose-driven uh, easy, and I'm I'm not being neg negative here, but but very easy. If there is a genuine, genuine falling away of object of meditation, meditator into the luminous clarity, 
there will be not a shred of doubt about what constitutes the purposeful nature of being. Not a shred. Not a tiny shred will be left of doubt as to what mind is for, what moments are for, and what the path of liberation is about. Not even a shred. If there is a little tiny glimpse, sometimes it takes a year or two of teaching to help a being. But then it means it's not really fully genuine. But if there is a genuine insight into the nature of freedom, which is the luminous clarity, natural luminous clarity of the mind, there is not a possibility of doubt as to what is the path, why there is a path, and that freedom is the thing that a being needs to do for the compassion of oneself and other beings. Not a shred. Not a shred. Not even a shred. Otherwise it wasn't a moment of Buddha nature. So I just say, needs more direction, more uh, support in understanding um, the uh, purpose. And through teaching and through guidance and through practice, um, it, be, it will be eventually become apparent, very clear, very apparent, that the um, natural state of the mind is liberation. And that the, uh, there is no reason in the world, there, you know there's no reason in the world why beings need to suffer. It's, a, it's like being in a theater and you don't know you can walk out the door. It's like thinking you're in a theater and you believe that the theater doors are locked. That you can't walk out and watch not only any movie and have permission to watch any movie, but actually the movie is the play of light images on a screen. It's, there's no you, there's no story. Is there a story in a movie? Where's the story in the movie? Where, you imagine, the compassion, compassion. When people talk to you and they say, I've got a problem. I've got difficulties. It's like saying that the movie that you're watching on the screen is real. And there's a story in there with actors. Where is the movie made up? In the mind. That recognition crumbles all fantasies, all delusion. And that brings about tremendous love and compassion for being suffering. Because it's unnecessary. It's absolutely unnecessary. At all. So it requires uh, a very, very ardent, I like that old-fashioned English word, ardent uh, surgical approach to phenomena. Boring in with joy and interest, like a good surgeon would, if they're not, you know, in a bad, having a bad mood. No, but but a curious scientist that is interested in figuring out what this phenomena is. Good. Any others?
that's where I hope my, my deep prayers for uh, all beings that I encounter, actually for everybody, but all beings I encounter, either they study with me or don't, is I dearly wish you do, you take the opportunity to practice and get the guidance to cut through the root and see that this is a play, a creation of mind, and that clinging is unnecessary. And if you're going to cling, cling with insight. Cling with passion. Passionate insight. Right? You may as well raise it up if you're going to cling. Then cling with compassion and cling with, with wisdom for the freedom of other beings. But there must be a definitive, at least a deep enough definitive uh, and uh, development of confidence about this, of what constitutes genuine freedom. That's, that's what people want. I'm quite confident on this one. I'll debate it. Don't need to. I don't want to anymore. Actually, I'm finished. Beings want happiness, but they're deluded to think that happiness is an object or a being experiencing that object. Happiness is the cessation of clinging. Happiness is the relaxation of the mind into pristine, luminous clarity. All beings want freedom. They don't want happiness. Beings want freedom. They really want freedom. Under all that desire to be this or to that, and the desire to be loved, and the desire to be hated, and the desire to be an enemy, and the desire to be hurt, and all that other stuff and dialogues that go on, they just want to be free, but they're just deluded in not knowing how to be free. So what does the organism do automatically? It gets another object. Person, place, thing, fantasy, dialogue. Outer object, inner object, doesn't matter. Any kind of object will do. Go into retreat and get to the point when you're by yourself where you realize that it doesn't matter what object, the mind just wants an object. It simply is longing and crying out for any kind of stimulation to make it feel better. And that's what it does 150 to 200 to 300,000 times a day, over and over and over again, is screaming for the object that's going to make it happy. Thinking that the internal object, the in external object, and the thing called self is going to be happy because of that. No, it's not possible. Never happened. It's a myth, it's a story. Luminous clarity of the natural mind is a happiness that transcends any words, can't even put words to it, because it never diminishes ever again in your life. It never goes away. It just gets richer and richer and richer. And even if you try to bury it with massive pub crawling, or one disco and singles bar after another, as I've known some people to do after the experience, it'll just come back with a strong force later on. Wham! It'll come back to Crimea. It's that strong. So no matter how you try to erase it, the little virus will work its way through your organism until you realize that's the purpose of... Uh, human mind. 
doesn't mean you can't do other creative, wonderful things in your life. It's beautiful. But uh, that's why people are suffering. Okay, I think that's plenty for tonight. Just a few ideas. A few share with you a few uh, notes on uh, classic notes, actually on the nature of awareness, the nature of the path of, of mindfulness, which is central to liberation. It's rich. And it's wonderful that so many people, it's being used in therapy today, it's being used all over the world, uh, mindfulness training, and it's wonderful that that, uh, uh, at least that, is being brought to people's attention and people are training more and more in mindfulness, and may that lead to a greater appreciation, ever-deepening appreciation of uh, the vast the vast possibilities of mindfulness and, and how, how uh, this is key. Mindfulness is none other, really, than a manifestation of the naturally luminous attentive mind, reaching out to be free. That's what it is. Just saying, see me, see me. I'm here. I'm here. You know, so like sometimes on a computer, you know, little, little icons on the bottom, little, what are they? What are they? Little icons, they pop up. They go, you know, it says number one or something. You, you ignore it and put it away. And there's a little thing over here going, Doo-doo. email message came in, Skype, Skype call, Doo-doo. message. Goes, Awareness is that. My, uh, attentiveness is that. It just keeps coming up and saying, when are you going to look at me? When you, not look. When are you going to look at this? Not look out. When are you going, and not look in. When are you going to take a really deep look at this? And it's bugging you all the time. So you've got a pop-up going on all the time, which is unsatisfied. Because you haven't answered your email. (laughs) Right? And it's going to keep popping up, especially Dharma practitioners who've heard the teaching, who've received the pith instructions, who've met the mind of, of some awake beings. It's going to keep popping up and popping up and popping up. How come you haven't answered your email? How come you haven't answered your email? You know I'm here. You know I'm here. It's like a call from your mom. You know I'm here. You know I'm here. When are you going to pick up the phone and call me, son? Come on. Call me. Just every day, all day long, little pop-ups going, look to awareness. It's there. Look to awareness. By this powerful activity of the teaching of Dharma, may it liberate countless beings. May they be free of all afflictive states. May all beings be healthy and happy, and may all beings be established in a continuity of freedom, the perfect union of compassion and wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. That was that was uh, <coughs> lots of fun. <laughs>